The honor that's that, that is ours today is certainly a notable one and one for which we can be so very thankful. The opportunity to assemble, the opportunity to offer the sincerest thoughts and adoration of our heart to the great God of heaven, for it is He who made us and who allows us to enjoy the things about us for each and every moment of the good things of the day. As we're assembled together today, you may have noted that the title of the lesson is in fact the communion of the body and the blood of Christ. As we give thought for the next few moments to the interesting, profound, and powerful character of the Lord's Supper and the things that associate to it, I would hope that each of us will be drawn to a nearer feeling for and understanding of what is involved in that Lord's Supper. Some introductory thoughts, some introductory ideas as it relates to that might well be these. There's no question that for those who give consideration to and honor to the Word of God that the authority vested in it is truly a magnificent and monumental thing. We're reminded by the Lord Himself in Matthew 28 verse 18 that we are in fact to follow His authority. He said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. With that, He challenged and charged those apostles to go everywhere to every nation and preach the central features of the gospel and that those who, of course, are proper responsive ones will be baptized. In Colossians 3 verse 17, the inspired apostle Paul there said, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. There's no question that worship... The features of it, the aspects of it, fall under the umbrella of what's dictated by the authority of the Christ. Thus, we partake of the Lord's Supper only on the day that the Scriptures reveal, the first day of the week. We don't partake of it on Wednesday, Saturday, Tuesday, or other days. But might I submit to you that as we give thought to the Lord's Supper and what's involved in it, there's more than just the right day of the week. There's more than just the right emblems. They are to be taken in the right way. What is that right way? And how do we appreciate the thoroughness and the feeling and the truth of God on that subject? For the next few moments, let me invite you to revisit the First Corinthian letter as we look carefully at chapter 10 in particular and revisit some of the things Paul had to say to the church in Corinth about their participation in the Lord's Supper. One of the first things that we might keep in mind is this that the church in Corinth had, among other problems, the proper observance of the Lord's Supper. There were things about it they didn't properly appreciate. There were things concerning it that had passed their careful observation. Some of their problems can also be ours. For the next few minutes, let us then revisit the Lord's Supper, and we'll do that by first recalling its establishment and then look more interestingly at the things upon which Paul bases his comments here. It is with that in mind that we come to the establishment described in, the, in these words. There is no question that as we read the gospel accounts, we are brought face to face with the truth that the Christ had as His central motivation the keeping of the will of God. Jesus said in John 6 verse 38, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. It was Jesus' intent while tabernacling in the flesh to pursue, execute, and thoroughly set forth that which was the will of God. It was the case that that will of God involved His marching to the cross. In John 10 verses 16, 17, and 18, 
we find among them, verse 17 highlights this, Jesus said, I lay down my life. He gave His life for those, really for all. But those who love Him will appreciate that which Christ did in the giving of His life, the shedding of His blood, and that is all memorialized in this which you and I call the Lord's Supper. Isn't it interesting in light of all of that? That takes us back to Luke the 22nd chapter. We remember that the gospel accounts detail for us in such a loving and profound way the Lord's institution of the Lord's Supper. It was that night that He and His apostles observed that Passover celebration. And as they had gathered on that occasion, Luke's account of it puts it in language like this, And He took bread and blessed it and brake it and gave it unto them and said, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Thus we learn immediately that there was unleavened bread involved in this, and the Lord took it, He says, and He blessed it and He broke it. And He gave it to them, and with it these words, This is my body, which is given for you. And you'll notice following that were the words that you'll see written on the front of that table here in front of me. This do in remembrance of me. The fascinating truth is that Jesus, as He took that bread, did something wholly unexpected from their point of view as it related to that Passover celebration. They had been used to keeping that, no doubt, for a long time, all their lives for most of them. But Jesus did something different, unique. And in it, He set forth this, which is the Lord's Supper. But you'll note the next verse, He didn't just stop at the bread. It says, "...likewise also the cup after supper, saying..." This cup is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. You'll notice in those statements, the Lord did something amazingly simple, but also incredibly meaningful. Among the matters that we see on that, return with me to think about what would transpire within the next few hours. He took the bread. That bread, and notice He said, this is my body. It was representative of that which was going to take place in terms of His ravaged, beaten, mutilated body that would be so horribly scourged and beaten and crucified the next day. It was to represent His body. In the years and in the centuries that have taken place since, when we participate in that bread, we take it. We ingest a part of it into our body it takes us back in our mind to the scene of what Jesus said when He said, This is my body. And what did His body suffer for you and for me? What did His body undergo for you and for me? You'll also notice in terms of that bread that these comments perhaps are worthy to be noted. The Corinthians had some serious misgivings about the nature of that. They were turning it into a common meal. The Lord's Supper for them had lost the special, meaningful character with which the Lord had invested it. And Paul, in fact, reminded them in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 20, he said, I can't commend you for some of these things you're doing. In fact, he rebuked them and reproved them. And he even pointed out in terms of their pitiful partaking of the Lord's Supper, he said, many of you are sick because of this. Their abuse of the Lord's Supper was in fact a partial cause of the difficulties and problems and was symptomatic 
of some of the greater issues with which the church there was wrestling. It would be fair to say that the proper observance of the Lord's Supper is vital to Christianity. It is a central feature of it, and if we, in fact, do not do that rightly, it first of all indicates that our Christianity isn't what it should be, and that at the very least we're weak, and perhaps we're sorely misguided in terms of the truth of God. In fairness, note also the Lord mentioned the blood. This cup, the contents of that cup, the fruit of the vine, was representative of the blood that He would shed, of course, in the next few hours. And isn't it interesting, He said, this is the blood of the New Testament. The entire gospel has as its basis the purity and beneficial character of that which was made known in the blood of Christ. Is it the life and the blood, Leviticus 17, verses 11 to 14? Spiritual life is only to be found in that precious blood, the blood our Savior shed. You and I have the honor, and it is an honor, to participate in it and do so each Lord's Day. As you give thought to some of these issues, might we go a step further and ask, what else did Paul teach and tell the church in Corinth concerning this Lord's Supper? As you come near the bottom of that slide, you'll notice there are but two emblems that our Savior instituted as a part of that supper, incorporating the fruit of the vine and the bread. There were no others. And doesn't that lead us to understand today the kind of raw mentality that must be present in those, and I can almost quote, who say it doesn't matter what the emblems on the Lord's table are. The movement from some 20 years or so back that said you could have steak and potatoes if you like. It's hard for me to imagine the tear that must be streaming down the eye of our God when He hears those who would make that kind of comment. The Lord used unleavened bread and fruit of the vine, and they have a deep significance, as Paul will indicate to the church in Corinth and others. And so today, what about that significance in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17? As we give thought to what's involved in them, I would ask that we reread them. Brother Joy read them for us earlier. But these verses again say, "...the cup of blessing which we bless." Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. In verse 16, Paul used a particular word twice, that word communion. Let's spend just a moment and give some thought to the significance and the definition of that term. The word communion as it was used both with respect to the bread and with respect to the cup. On the one hand, it had to do, of course, as you can see, with the body, and on the other hand, with blood. That word communion is from the Greek word koinonia. And as you can see, it occurs some 20 times in the New Testament in one form or another. And it would seem with each occurrence that the significance and the utility and the meaning is something to be greatly appreciated. I've listed a couple of presentations of, of its meaning or definition from two different Greek lexicons. One, the Freiburg lexicon. And you'll notice it seems to be used as a relationship characterized by sharing in common. Thayer's lexicon, however, in a way that seems at least somewhat associated, puts it in language like this. It has within it the notion of fellowship. 
The idea of association, community, and joint participation. It's easy to see from both of them that this notion of communion carries with it the implication of a close association. Think about briefly some of the other occurrences. In Acts 2.42, on that very day in which the church was established, it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. And that word fellowship is the same word, koinonia. That early church was founded in and greatly given to a means of fellowship as described by the apostles and maintained by the doctrine that they had set forth. We notice here, as Paul talked about the Lord's Supper, he used twice this word that means communion or fellowship, participation in. Let's give some thought to what that may suggest. First, with regard to the bread. I've put it in larger print for each of us to consider as we look again at verse 16. The bread which is broken, the very language of verse 16, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And thus, as we break that bread, as we participate in it, based on those definitions, we are enjoying a fellowship of the body of Christ. We are enjoying a joint participation in a communion, if you please, with the body of Christ. That kind of communion reminds us that though we are many individuals, a large number of us, but yet we are one in Christ. There is one body. We're taught in Colossians 1.18 that in fact He is the head of the body, the church. That one body is highlighted also in Ephesians 4 verse 4 when there the inspired writer pointed out so eloquently that there is one body. So despite the fact that we're many individuals, male and female, we are but one body. That unity is highlighted in the language you see there at the bottom. Paul stated in verse 17 in these words, For we being many are one bread and one body. As you and I think about a loaf of bread, there are many atoms, many molecules, many bread particles, if you will, that comprise it, but it makes one loaf. And so it is, it seems, with regard to the church. Though many individuals we are, we comprise one body, one bread. That one bread is highlighted in some other language in the New Testament in ways much like this. I would ask you to notice Romans 12 verse 5. For isn't it true that that one church, that one bread, is one characterized and described as unleavened bread of sincerity and truth? You and I are those dedicated and devoted to the unleavened bread, the pure, unadulterated truth of God set forth in sincerity and in truth. The highlighted features of that take us back to 1 Corinthians 5 verse 8 where there Paul admonished the church in Corinth, let us keep the feast, keeping that Lord's Supper, but not with malice and not with worldly carnal approaches, but rather doing so with the integrity and character with which the Lord invested it. The Lord's Supper is not a trivial exercise. It is one of the highlights of the week for the Christian. It's a special time of communion with regard to the character of the body and blood of Christ taking us back to the one who died for us, allowing His body to be so terribly treated and shedding His blood on our behalf. 
as you and I thus properly partake of that Lord's Supper, the bread part of it, we indeed enjoy a communion with the very body of Christ, the church as whole. Isn't that a lovely concept? To think that this very morning, countless thousands of Christians around the world are breaking the same unleavened bread and we are communing with them in the body of Christ, recollecting and remembering the scene at Calvary centuries ago. And we're using that as an aid to, in fact, encourage ourselves to live more faithfully and more powerfully for the cause of Christ ourselves. The Lord's Supper, a very special time indeed. What about the blood? What about the cup? You'll notice Paul also makes mention of it. In verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The cup of blessing... And that word cup is used to identify that which is the contents of it, that fruit of the vine. Taking us back to the scene again of Matthew 26 when Jesus, as He instituted that, He made reference to the fruit of the vine and said that they which keep it shall keep it new. It is to be noted that here are some comments that we can consider concerning it. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? That cup, its contents, though there's grape juice in it, fruit of the vine, we notice it is a communion of something far deeper than that. We commune not with grapes, but we commune with the blood of Christ. And in it, we think about the benefits and power and blessing that accords to that blood. I highlighted in language like this. It is thus intended that those who observe that Lord's Supper live a life of holy and dedicated and forgiven living because they appreciate what those emblems represent. In John 6, verses 53 and 54, on that occasion when Jesus made some rather directed and pointed statements, He Himself stated to those on that occasion, that unless ye eat my bread and drink my blood, ye have no life in you. Now Jesus on that occasion, it seems, wasn't specifically speaking of the Lord's Supper. That was long before He established it. But He nonetheless set forth a principle that to any individual, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, unless you imbibe yourself in that which I've taught and live in a dedicated fashion after it, giving your life over in truth to that which I have set forth, you have no life in you. And in the next verse, he even used that statement, eternal life. If we expect to entertain the glorious climbs of heaven and to be blessed by entering therein, the proper, careful, and right participation in the Lord's Supper is required. It's no wonder then that this is such a special set of moments each Lord's Day when we participate in it together. It's a communion of both the body and of the blood of Christ. It is for those reasons that we make that final observation that should be a reminder to each of us. As we then think about what the Lord and Savior instituted, what then would it say if we were to participate in it improperly? might it thus be concluded, it makes no sense for a person not in communion with Christ to try and be in communion with the Lord's Supper. For that is emblematic of communion with Him. Paul has just said so. 
The bread is a communion of His body. The fruit of the vine, a communion to His blood. And thus, if you and I aren't living in communion with Him, the Lord's Supper has little, if any, meaning to us. But rather to that person determined to live as God would have him or her to live. To live in a way each day that is of soberness, righteousness, and godliness. To live as Paul identified in Galatians 2 verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. For the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. To that kind of person, the Lord's Supper is everything. For that person understands that I'm dead. The old man of sin has been buried in baptism. I have begun to live and walk in newness of life by virtue of that association with Christ. And this Lord's Supper is my weekly communion in a very direct and open way with the body and blood of Christ. The significance and meaning is it thus is even seen as we look at what else Paul had to say to the Corinthian brethren. He in fact reminded them, taught them matters that might well be described in language like this. Look at verse number 21 with me of the same chapter. 1 Corinthians 10, verse number 21. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. We notice that Paul on that occasion makes reference to the table of devils as well as the Lord's table. And he also asserts in that same text the cup of devils and the cup of the Lord. By the singular usage and the references in that, you and I can easily see that Paul had in mind the contrast that is the Lord's Supper with other kind of carnal, fleshly, ungodly living. And that, of course, was what he was reminding the Corinthians. You can't be children of the devil and children of the Lord at the same time. You can't eat of the Lord's table and the devil's table at the one and same time together. And isn't that still a penetrating lesson for you and for me today? You and I see you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils at the same time. You and I thus cannot strive to eat of the Lord's table on Sunday and of the devil's table on Monday through Saturday. It doesn't work that way. We cannot, as the old saying would go, sow wild oats through the week and pray for a crop failure on Sunday. We need daily, concerted, dedicated living to the Lord so that that Lord's Supper is emblematic of a life dedicated and determined to the cause of the Master. Other language we notice in this chapter and others point us to the integrity of 1 John 1 verse 7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. There's that word koinonia again. There it renders the word fellowship. Did you note the significance with me of its presentation? If we walk in the light... As He is in the light, we have koinonia, one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. The lovely communion then that we enjoy in Christ is set forth and shown so lovingly each Lord's day by our participation in the Lord's Supper. But what else might be affirmed? As we think about thus the meaning of the other things that Paul taught the Corinthians... It's entirely fair to bring us to chapter 11. 
It was in this chapter that perhaps our mind rushed as we first thought about what Paul said concerning the Lord's Supper. I would invite you to read with me beginning in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He brake it, and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also He took the cup when He had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till He come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come." perhaps of significance to us for the time being as we draw near the conclusion of the lesson this morning, is to give thought to what Paul taught them concerning their participation in this communion we call the Lord's Supper. You'll notice he again said, As oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till He come. You and I make a statement to one another and yea to the entire world in our observation of this Lord's Supper. Not only does it cause us to look back to the cross and thus have an element of reflection in it, it also has an element of prospection, looking forward as we openly proclaim to all our belief in the death of Christ, in the shedding of His blood, in the body that was so terribly beaten for us. We proclaim it until He come. You'll notice in verses 27 and 28, there is a stern warning to those who would partake unworthily. Whosoever therefore shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. The significance is seen and highlighted, isn't it, in that adverb unworthily. What does it mean then to partake of it unworthily? In fact, that word sounds very much like the word unworthy. But there's a great difference in those two words, isn't there? The word unworthy is an adjective, and thus it describes a noun or a pronoun, or perhaps another part of speech. The word unworthily, however, is an adverb, and that's the one the Holy Spirit has chosen to use. Whosoever shall eat the bread or drink the cup unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord." That word unworthily as an adverb identifies the manner in which the cup and the fruit of the vine are partaken. Are you and I remembering the scene of the cross? Do we go in our mind back to the characteristic of the shed blood of Christ and the beatenness of His body? Do we thus partake of it in a way that is not emblematic of the way in which the Lord instituted it? Are we thinking about something else? 
maybe what we're going to have for lunch, the ball games that may be played later, the events of work tomorrow. If those things are filling our mind, we are partaking unworthily, for we aren't partaking in the way and in the manner that the Lord here so indicated. But you might also notice in verse 28, He said, Let a man examine himself. That word examine means to prove, to test. We each are in a position of needing to examine ourselves in that regard and to ensure that we partake in a way that's proper and in a way that is in accordance to the truthfulness of God's revelation. Some of the thoughts that may come to our mind then would be those. As you and I examine ourselves, are we living a life in which we are in communion with the body and blood of Christ? Earlier we noted in verse 16 of chapter 10 that the cup is a communion to His blood and the bread is a communion to His body. Are we living as if that's the truth of our life? If not, what might that say about our participation in the Lord's Supper? In a few moments, if it be the will of God, we're together going to participate in it and I trust that our thoughts and our participation will be an encouraging thing that you and I might in fact be challenged even more nobly to live this week a life that would in fact be indicative of the very things for which Christ died. His blood, His body are that significant. As we conclude the lesson, we've learned much or been reminded of the problems of the Corinthian church, but those also can be our problems if we aren't careful. May we be challenged and charged to live in such a way that we can participate in this with clear conscience and do so understanding that our mind must go back to the cross, partaking of it properly, and also letting it serve as a standard for what life for you and me should be tomorrow, that we are determined to live the very life that Jesus set forth. Even as Paul said, He was crucified with Christ, but rather He lived for Him each day. Today, if you are not a member of the body of Christ, may we note at this point that if you've reached that age of knowing wrong from right, but have not obeyed the gospel, at this point you are not in communion with the Lord, and thus the Lord's Supper is meaningless to you. Rather, you need to give your life in open compliance to His will, be baptized into Him, Galatians 3, 26 and 7, and then the Lord's Supper is a momentous weekly memorial in which you are spiritually strengthened and the food that you ingest in it. Far more important than just being useful for the physical body is useful for the soul and spirit. If we could help you to become a Christian today, the gospel plan of salvation is simple. It would be easy for you to, in fact, comply with it. You need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, John 8, 21 to 24. Upon that belief, repent of the sins in your life, Luke 13, 3. Confess the great name of Jesus as the Son of God required in the language of Matthew 10, 32 and 33, and then be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38. If we could be of assistance to you today in that, we'd be delighted and honored to assist you. If you have become a member of the body of Christ at some former day and knew the blessedness of the Lord's Supper, but perhaps over the gradual character of time, it's lost its meaning. It's just a rote, Ritual matter now. Something must be amiss. The Lord's Supper is intending to be richer, deeper, more profound than that. You have a spiritual problem. If you need to return to your first love, why not today? This eighth day of January 2012, there could never be a better day than this one. 
None of us know what tomorrow may bring, Proverbs 27.1. If you need to make things right between you and your Lord today, why not now? We're about to stand in just a moment and sing a song of encouragement. If we could pray on your behalf, why not during that song come forward and simply let, let one of us know, and we'd be honored to assist you. If we could help you today, why not do it now while together we stand and while we sing.